2: As immigration policy continues its sea change, one Massachusetts family is torn apart.
1: When I see it, it's taken them one by one. First it was my dad, and my mom, and my brother
2: and two communities bridging the political divide one person at a time.
3: It was putting ourselves out and asking them to put themselves out honestly about who they are, what they care about. And we've developed very strong respectful relationships.
2: And mutiny on the high seas. The crew killed the captain, extorted money from the passengers, and then abandoned ship. Or did they? We'll hear the real story behind the legend of Block Island's Palatine shipwreck. I'm Shannon Dooling, in for John Dankoski. It's Next.
4: Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region, with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This is Next.
2: I'm Shannon Dooling, in for John Dankoski. Today, we begin with the story of a family separated one by one along strict lines, their differing immigration statuses. Saying goodbye at Boston's Logan Airport is a familiar and painful scene for the four Macario brothers. Just two years ago, they said goodbye to their father when he was deported back to his native Guatemala after losing an asylum case. Earlier this week, the oldest brother, Isidro, faced the same fate, Accompanied by federal immigration officers through airport security, Isidro was bound for deportation back to Guatemala, where he was born. Just a few days ago, I met with the family at their apartment in Lynn, Massachusetts, to hear more about the impact of legal status on their lives. (laughs) The Macario brothers, four of them in all, are looking at old school photos hanging on the wall in their Lynn apartment. They're poking fun at the haircut their dad gave one of them back in the third grade. There's a plastic picture of pink Kool-Aid on the kitchen table and a Bible sitting on top of the microwave. The youngest brothers come out of their room one by one, 21-year-old Irwin, 18-year-old Anthony, and 16-year-old Saul. They're each wearing some variation of sweatpants and sweatshirts. They all know this could be one of their last nights together with their eldest brother, 27-year-old Isidro. After several years of receiving stays of his removal from the U.S., he's run out of options.
5: You know, it didn't start yesterday. It's been going on for almost eight years straight.
2: Isidro Macario says worrying about the future is just a part of life for his family. They're accustomed to receiving regular doses of anxiety, usually in the form of correspondences from the Department of Homeland Security. and usually they come in the mail around Christmas time.
5: I remember um, most of the time we we are in the living room receiving letters um, saying that that our parents uh, have to leave the country, and instead of you know having a table uh, ready for the family, we get these letters or bad news. it always happens so.
2: Isidro Macario was born in Guatemala and came to the U.S. when he was 13 years old. His younger brothers are all U.S.-born citizens. John Moen, a spokesman for U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, said in a statement he could not comment on the details of Isidro Macario's deportation case, but confirmed he was scheduled for removal. Isidro Macario has applied for different legal statuses, but criminal charges, stemming from what his lawyer calls a misunderstanding a few years ago, stood in his way. Those charges were dismissed in 2013, according to court documents, and he has no criminal convictions.
5: You know, it's, it's very tough for, for, for myself and also for my family because, um, you know, we've been struggling with this for so many years, and um, instead, of, instead of getting better, we... You know, it, get, it keeps getting worse and worse and worse, and we just, no, nobody understands probably our pain.
2: Isidro Macario is the oldest brother and also doubles as a parent to his younger brothers. Their father was deported back to Guatemala in 2016. Their mother, Marita, is in the U.S. without documentation and also has a removal order. For nearly two months, she's been seeking shelter in a church in greater Boston. We've agreed not to use her full name and not to disclose her location because she fears for her safety. Marita says being separated from her sons makes her ill. But for now, she believes living in the church is her safest option.
4: Por mi familia. Yo no los quiero dejar.
2: <laughs> I'm here for my family, she says. I don't want to leave my sons. I'm sad. But I'm also okay here. I'm in good hands. I miss my sons, and I want to be with them, because they need me, and I need them too. This type of family upheaval is becoming more common, according to some immigration advocates, especially in families like the Macarios, where different members hold different immigration statuses.
3: For example, an undocumented mom with two citizen children and a husband who has, let's say, TPS.
2: That's Ava Malona, director of the Massachusetts Immigrant and Refugee Advocacy Coalition. She says mixed-status households are common across the country and here in Massachusetts, given there are nearly one million foreign-born residents in the state, half of whom are naturalized citizens.
3: It's a huge concern emotionally, but also practically, because, you know, these individuals are part of the workforce, they're consumers. So it's really, uh, really problematic and widespread. President
2: Trump's shift in immigration enforcement priorities, the debate over DACA, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, and the elimination of temporary protected status for some countries have all created cavernous unknowns. The uncertainty facing these mixed status families from one day to the next can sort of feel like whiplash. It's a feeling that 16-year-old Saul Macario can relate to.
1: When I see the and taking them one by one. That's how I see it. First it was my dad, then my mom, and
5: my brother.
2: With the hood of his sweatshirt pulled down low over his forehead and his hair just slightly in his eyes, 21-year-old Erwin Macario says he's been thinking a lot about what it would mean to be the oldest in the house.
5: It's a, it's a lot to take in, um, to take care of my little brothers It's going to be a lot of responsibility, but at the same time, it's going to help me mature. And um, if anything, you know, I got them, and I'm going to push through just for them.
2: Erwin Macario says he can always find a second job to make up for the missing income and help keep his family intact. From Lynn, Massachusetts, we turn now to Vermont. For years, organic farming was a bright spot in the regional dairy economy. Demand for organic milk was growing, and farmers could earn much more than their conventional counterparts. But as Vermont Public Radio's John Dillon reports, organic milk sales are down, and so are the prices that farmers are paid.
1: Last summer, central Vermont dairy farmer David Sillaway was in the slow and expensive process of switching over to a certified organic operation. That involves not using chemical pesticides or fertilizers and feeding the 65 milkers costly organic grain for a year, as son John Silloway was doing last summer. So
6: this is the organic stuff. It is. 600 bucks a ton right there.
1: Silloway was counting on the investment paying off this spring when he was supposed to start earning a much higher price by selling organic milk to a dairy cooperative. But that's not happening.
6: We are stuck in a transition mode where organic will not take us for possibly another year and a half, but we are having to feed organic grain to stay in the transition mode. I
1: caught up with Siloway at the annual Vermont Farm Show. He had recently gotten word that because the market is down, his organic buyer has delayed accepting his milk.
6: So it's costing us for an extra year's worth of high-priced grain to uh, be on hold, so to speak.
1: The Wisconsin-based Organic Valley Dairy Co-op is helping cover some of the expense of the organic grain but being on hold is still costly for Silhouette's family operation.
6: It doesn't help.
1: On top of this delay and the higher cost of organic production, many organic dairy farmers are seeing a lower milk price.
6: Basically, we could be looking
0: at, you know, a 15% pay cut in 2017 and 18
6: as compared to the previous two or three years.
1: Bob Parsons is a dairy economist at the University of Vermont. Parsons says the reason is simple supply and demand. Just like in the conventional milk market, there's too much organic milk out there, so prices are falling.
0: We're in an oversupply of organic milk. So until we have some farms going out of business and we have a cutting back of the dairy herd, that's your major problem.
1: We don't want to get in a race to the bottom in a price war for organic milk because that will hurt nobody except farmers. Hans Eisenbeis is a spokesman for Organic Valley, the farmer-owned co-op that David Silloway hopes will someday buy his milk. Eisenbeis says the co-op has imposed quotas on its farms in order to keep the milk supply in check. Organic Valley has 119 farms in Vermont, and it pays about $30 for 100 pounds of milk. That's about $4 down from the peak, but it's still about twice as much as farmers get for conventional milk. Eisenbeis says demand for organic butter and cheese is still strong. But organic fluid milk, especially 2% and skim, has really kind of gone off a cliff in terms of consumer demand for those things. Eisenbeis notes that consumer interest is growing in milk produced by cows that are grass-fed only. It's yet another way that farmers are trying to tailor their products for consumer demand for food from farms that are hyper-local and gentler on the environment. And that can be seen in a supermarket outside of Burlington, Vermont, where the dairy case is stuffed with organic milk. Heike Meyer passes by the cartons of Organic Valley and picks up some from a local Vermont farm that bottles its own milk.
7: I'm
0: probably not a good example, but I don't care about the price. I'm, I'm willing to pay double. And I know that I have to pay more for, for quality and for local
4: things.
1: And while this highly specialized market continues to expand, the farmers making the more mass-market organic milk are not seeing the benefit. At the farm show, David sillaway says he knows he'll have to wait at least another year to get the higher prices.
6: We're lucky to have a strong maple business and a strong firewood business that help us keep going until we can get the full organic price.
1: His small farm operation will survive, he says, until, he hopes, the market for organic milk rebounds.
2: That was John Dillon reporting for Vermont Public Radio. Coming up, finding common ground between Massachusetts' Pioneer Valley and Kentucky coal country. It's next.
0: Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming.
2: This is Next. I'm Shannon Dooling. John Dankosky is away this week. The election of President Donald Trump in 2016 left much of the country divided along strict partisan lines. In Leverett, Massachusetts, a small liberal town just north of Amherst, there was a sense among some of the residents that they wanted to know more about people who voted for Mr. Trump. To do that, they had to look outside of their own community— Paula Green helped lead the charge. She's a professional conflict facilitator and co-founded the Leverett Peace Commission. The group set its sights on Trump country, exchanging emails with a social justice group in Letcher County, Kentucky, a coal community where about 80% of the vote went to Trump. And eventually, last October, community members from Letcher County crowded into vans and headed for Leverett for a three-day workshop, a project that's been called Hands Across the Hills. The group is gearing up for another workshop, this time in Kentucky, and today we have a conversation with some of the people who will be there. We reached Gwen Johnson and Nell Fields at an arts and culture center in Whitesburg, Kentucky, and we reached Danielle Barshak and Paula Green of Leverett at the studios of New England Public Radio in Springfield, Mass. Green says the point of the project is to foster conversation, to look beyond this idea
3: of the other. It was befriending people. It was understanding people. It was, it was um, putting ourselves out and asking them to put themselves out honestly about who they are, what they care about, um, and uh, we've developed very strong and um, respectful relationships across this divide.
2: Mm. So, so Gwen, I, I, I'm curious when. When when you found out a group of people from Massachusetts wanted to to start this project and this this dialogue, what were you you thinking? And was it a difficult thing to get people on board?
7: Well, we had a discussion at a meeting of organizations in our county. Um, There was some fear with some of the folks who uh, just feared uh, more exploitation of our culture and our ways.
2: Gwen, t- tell me a little bit about that that exploitation you mentioned. Where that f- for for you and your community, where you all felt that that was coming from, and why that was a concern that sort of first rose to the surface for you all when when you were discussing this as an option. Well,
7: uh, journalists and uh, photographers have visited our area for decades and picked out the very worst of the worst of situations to photograph and document. And then those were the only images that most of the nation had of our um, region. And then as a result, we've been
2: stereotyped. Um, From Danielle and from from, uh, Paula, did you find that you were sort of rubbing up against some stereotypes of your own, uh, whether, you know, coming from the sort of liberal-leaning East Coast um, and also sort of confronting stereotypes that you may hold for, for folks out in, in coal country.
8: Um, so this is Danielle. I think that it was not so much that I had stereotypes because I actually had been through coal country uh, Kentucky and it was having been there before that that drew me to this project. So I was pretty open about what uh, what might be coming. I think that for me, the thing that was most surprising was really how committed people were to their community. Uh, I think way more so than we are here. Uh, people were, were talking about how to preserve their families, their communities. What struck me the most is that we are. We just take for granted that our children are going to move away, that we will move away somewhere for a job, uh, but that what I was hearing from people in Kentucky was the most important thing, or one of the most important things, was maintaining their family ties and, and maintaining their mm. culture. And, and that was mm. kind of surprising and unexpected yeah.
2: to me. Yeah, so, so Nell, I want to bring you into the conversation now, too. I, I'm curious. When you showed up in Leverett, Massachusetts, Western Mass, what, what what were your sort of reactions? Were you surprised by anything? And if so, why do you think you were surprised?
9: Well, I think uh, we were we were so welcomed, and probably the surprise that I got was that that it was pretty rural. Um, I think that. For me, as being somebody who hasn't traveled a lot, by images of people that live away is always in the cities. The cities is what you see, what you see on TV, and what you hear stories about. So, uh, to find that it was a very rural community was a, really a pleasant feeling because I knew then that we, you know, that was very uh, comforting to me. It, mm. it felt like home. I could feel that almost. I think that helped me a lot after arriving there. But I really did think that there might have been some spaces of discomfort in our dialogue sessions and that kind of thing, and, and it didn't happen.
2: Where else did you find those commonalities besides the rural location and the sort of, um, you know, the, the, the welcoming? Were there were there topics like, I don't know, immigration or labor or other parts of sort of the mainstream kind of political spectrum where you all found yourselves coming from different physical geographic areas, but but sort of finding a common ground?
3: Well, this is Paula. I think what's common is we all want the same things. Where we're separated is we have different ways of getting them. One of the exercises we did was to look at various um, personal and social and political issues and to see where we were on a spectrum. And so one of the questions was about guns. And um, our friends from Kentucky, as far as I could understand, felt safer when people have guns. And we felt safer when people didn't have guns. So what we both want is safety, but how the Mm -hmm. safety is obtained might be different.
9: Well, I think immigration was one of the things that came to me uh, in the very first few minutes of our dialogue session, as people had shared with us who they were and where they were from. And I realized that so many people there had such close connections to the immigration process of their families. You know, there were people first, second generations almost that had immigrated to this country that was sitting in that room with us and, and being from the mountains here and being from Eastern Kentucky and the people that I know and the people that I've lived with all my life probably have no clue of when their families immigrated to this country. No wonder that immigration isn't a big issue here for most of us here in the mountains. It's because we're not that personally connected to the immigration process. Danielle, did you want to chime in?
8: Yeah, I, I was going to say that um, for me, a lot of this project was about uh, making sure that people did not sort of fear or not know the other. Uh, and that comes from my own mother's uh, background as a Holocaust survivor, where it was the the ability of people to see, well, in this case, the, the Jews, uh, as people that they didn't know, they didn't understand. And that sort of lack of connection allowed them to be... Uh, victimized. And so I've always had this feeling that uh, it's really important for people to know the other.
2: Yeah. Yeah. You know, Gwen and Nell, you've both mentioned stereotypes and about the the influence of the coal industry and, and how it affects your your lives. We, we haven't really even talked about the actual political you know, impetus, which was the election of, of Donald Trump in some ways, right?
3: Well, this is Paula, and I'd like to respond to that because I'm the one responsible for designing and facilitating these dialogues um, based on many, many experiences. And the first one was that you don't start with the hardest. You start with building community and building common bonds and building trust. If you start with the hardest issue, which in this case would be Donald Trump, we'd never get to anything because we would wind up having a lot of tension between us and a lot of discord and a lot of mistrust.
2: Gwen or Nell, how did getting into the topic of, of the election? How did you feel like that went um, for you all in a, in sort of outside of your physical
9: comfort zone? Maybe that would probably have been another one of the things that that was a pleasant surprise to me is because I was trying to brace myself for more difficult discussions. Then going there and going through that process with Paula, it's it's really broadened my way of thinking of elections and and of election outcomes. And community engagement, you know, my 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 life has been built around being a strong person in my community, and I felt that going away after Donald Trump was elected president, I, I felt like there was a kind of a a pause in all of my personal connections with people that that voted differently than I did, and and a, a pause inside myself to where I hardly knew how to approach any conversation, afraid that mm-hmm. it would go to the Donald Trump conversation, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so after. Going through that process and really searching my soul and, and and forcing myself to start thinking in terms of understanding and appreciating people that thought differently than I did. It, it's made a world of difference of the, how I will be working in my community from now on.
7: This is Gwen. Can I oh, speak to that? Yeah. Well, the way I felt about it was it was kind of like going um, to the swimming hole. Uh, in the in late May or early June when it's not really that warm and you kind of dip your toe into it to test the waters <laughs> and there was a lot of testing of the waters and then um, after we kind of established a basis of trust um, that we weren't going to be uh, thrown out or rolled out on a rail or tired and feathered <laughs> then uh, we were able to dive right in and get to the heart of the issue,
6: mm-hmm.
2: which which for you, Gwen, what what is the heart of the issue for for you personally? I know you come from a, a family of of coal miners, and um, I, I'm wondering if if that played a role in in your political stance, or what what for you is the heart of the issue?
7: Oh, that was that was the whole thing. I had a lot of trouble voting for Mr. Trump, but I did vote for Mr. Trump. Um, I wrestled with it. my community and uh, the coal miners in my community and indeed in my family, and the way that um, Hillary Clinton conducted herself um, and the things that she said in West Virginia concerning the coal miners, that played a role in how I voted. And uh, because i was um, I was insulted. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't live in a culture and not be insulted when you feel like it's under attack. You know, and if, if it had been under attack with, with some other um, plan in place to put everybody to work, um, then that would have been different. I know there was talk, but talk is cheap. There were a lot of factors. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had mm-hmm. trouble voting against a woman. Because I think it's time for a woman uh, to be in office uh, from the top to the bottom. I had a wrestle with uh, Mr. Trump and the things that uh, he said about groping women and all those yeah. things. I mean, I was not blind to any of that.
2: Right. But
7: my, um, my own personal conviction was that I could not betray um, my community and uh, the people
2: I love. Yeah, that's and that's a strong conviction, and it's at its base a, a conviction that I I'm willing to bet Paula and Danielle you can understand.
8: Uh, yeah. So I I think for me hearing of uh, hearing how people spoke about their ambivalences about voting for Trump, uh, but also why they did it. So sort of the irony is that it, it allowed me to understand why people voted for Trump, it, which was something that I couldn't get from people around here. So, in a way, we had more honest conversations, and we gained better understanding about what motivated people than we would have up here in in liberal New England. Uh,
2: something that that has struck me: you you paid attention to one another. You it, it took time to plan this. It took time. Uh, to, to, to disarm one another. It took time um, to begin the process of understanding one another. Do you all, you know, have hope that this uh, sort of format can be replicable? Is this uh, something that people can do in other communities across the country?
3: are are doing this was to do this as a pilot experiment to see what we could do, and we hope very much to see this replicated. I also want to say that there are many groups in this country doing it already, and we are going to Kentucky in April, and we don't know what's going to come next for us. We have relationships now that have value for all of us, and we may do more of this with this group or other people from that region. Or we may reach into other communities, but certainly we hope this is just the beginning.
2: Yeah, Gwen, Gwen, and and Nell, what what do you what do you guys have to add in terms of, you know, the sort of hope that you have of of uh, of people in other parts of the country being able to forge similar relationships? I think um, if we could go to Leverett, Massachusetts,
7: uh, carrying our own form of resentments and. Uh, feeling run roughshod over and come to the consensus that we did, then I believe it can be used in other realms.
9: Well said, Gwen. Uh, this is now, and it's a personal growth as well as a community growth. When this many people in our community can learn what we've learned and share what we've shared with people in Massachusetts, it's going to help build and change our whole community.
2: I overheard a little bit of discussion before I got on the line about exchanging recipes and what you're going to bake. And and it just sounded like such a, 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 I mean, something you would you know, hear of any group of friends, you know, catching up and getting ready for for a visit, and I, I just wonder, um, Paula and Danielle, sort of, what are your expectations, and, and and how are you thinking about things leading up to your trip to um, to Kentucky in April?
3: Well, I'm glad you were listening into our pre conversation, Shannon, because <laughs> it's exactly what's happened. We're friends, and we can talk about bringing chocolate whoppers and fresh baked bread with us, and and um, I'm looking forward to it immensely. It's gonna be a very rich, personal, cultural experience for us. And I hope that we can show the best of ourselves so that the stereotypes that we hold of each other um, are disappeared for a much larger population than just a few of us who so far know each other.
8: I'm just so excited to go down and live with you and be part of it. I feel like I don't have anything particularly to teach. But I'm just—I'm full of excitement and goodwill, and I'm not going with a political agenda. Although I suppose I could probably be prodded one into one pretty easily. And and I think talking about guns is a really great one because I think that a leverage Leverett uh, collaboration would be a, a really terrific way to advance some kind of sensible legislation.
2: And Gwen and Nell, what about what about you guys? What are what are you looking forward to? I ma- I imagine you're quite busy in some preparation and planning.
9: We are, and and i I'm sure that everybody out there and listening in radio, if you're listening really hard, you can hear us smiling from ear to <laughs> ear right now because we're very excited and we're <laughs> just getting into the the detailed part of our planning, which is which is seeming like we just can't keep them long enough to do all the great things we do want to do while they're here. This is Gwen, and I'm thinking about
7: um, this. Um, visit as a kind of a family reunion Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. with these uh, folks that we've developed, um, what I believe will be friendships for a lifetime.
2: Well, I am so grateful to all of you for sharing your experiences and um, for letting me dip my toe into into the water hole with you all. Paula Green of Leverett is the co-founder of the Leverett Peace Commission. Paula, thank you for your time today. My pleasure. And Danielle Barshak of Leverett, um, thank you for your time and and your thoughts, and um, I wish you guys the best um, in April. Thank you. Nell Fields, thank you so much for sharing your your thoughts and your perspective with us today. Thank you, Shannon. And Gwen Johnson of Letcher County. Again, wish you all the best in April and can't wait to hear about it. Thank you. My pleasure. Coming up, the true story behind a legendary shipwreck. It's next. Next
0: is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of
3: climate and clean energy.
2: This is Next. I'm Shannon Dooling. A few days after Christmas in 1738, a British merchant ship carrying emigrants from southwest Germany was grounded in a blizzard on the tip of Block Island. Because of storms and sickness, only 100 passengers and crew remained on the ship that once carried more than 300. Details of the incident were sketchy, and soon, different tales of the shipwreck began swirling throughout the community. Over centuries, islanders have reported seeing an apparition of a flaming ship off the coast of Block Island. Stories emerged about why the ship crashed and what really happened to the passengers. Joining us to talk about the legend of the Palatine ship is Jill Farinelli, author of The Palatine Wreck, The Legend of the New England Ghost Ship. Jill, welcome to Next. Thank you for having me. Let's, I guess, just start right at the top with this legend of, of the Palatine wreck. Tell me a little bit about that. What, what is that? Well, the
0: legend says that two days after Christmas in 1738, a ship named the Palatine with about little over 100 passengers on board wrecked on Block Island. Um, it was carrying uh, German immigrants. And it was from that incident that the legend grew. There were two versions of the legend. The first version says that the crew killed the captain, extorted money from the passengers, and then abandoned ship. And the ship drifted ashore, um, and the Block Islanders rescued the passengers and nursed them back to health. The second version of the story is that the islanders lured the ship ashore with a false signal light and then robbed and killed all the passengers. And in both accounts, it was said that the ship was set on fire and just burned to the waterline. Wow. But of course, we learned that that wasn't really what had happened. But ever since then, Block Island is is said to be haunted by this flaming ghost ship that has come back to sort of remind people of the crimes that were supposedly committed there. And uh, the ghost ship's been named the Palatine Light, but in fact the ship's real name was the Princess Augusta. Um, When the newspapers reported on Wreck. They never stated the ship's real name, uh, and so it came to be known as the Palatine, which is an area in Germany where
2: they were from I Palatinate. See. And so, how did you come across this legend, Jill?
0: Um, at least ten years ago, I was out on Block Island with some friends, and we had walked out to the northern tip of the island, which is actually where the wreck occurred. And my friends had told me about this ghost ship that has appeared on and off over the years, and they said it was an immigrant ship that had wrecked there, and they weren't sure of the circumstances. But I was really curious. So I went home and dug around and um, discovered that no one really knew who was on board. No one knew the names of any of these people. And I just thought that that was really sad that these people just disappeared, mm. and I started to look for passenger lists, and of course I couldn't find one. But the more I was, the more I got reading about the Palatine migration. That sort of um, led me to other books and other footnotes, and I just followed a trail of breadcrumbs and found the names of uh, fifteen people. Who were the, the the Palatines? Where were they immigrating from, and, and why? These were German-speaking immigrants who lived along the Rhine River Valley um, in what is now southwestern Germany. And they were leaving for the same reasons that people leave today, religious persecution and economic uncertainty and political oppression and the threat of war. They began leaving, um, small numbers at the late 1600s, and as the century, 18th century wore on, um, more and more left. And many of them ended up in Pennsylvania.
2: So what, what did you discover about what really
0: happened that day when the when the mm-hmm. ship wrecked? It turns out that the wreck itself was probably the best thing that could have happened to the survivors who were still on board at that point. There were 340 passengers who had boarded in Rotterdam. The ship left on time in late June Um, It passed through the English Channel, and there it hit a series of storms. Um, It should have taken just a few weeks to get through the channel out into the Atlantic, but they were held up for months. And so by the time they got on the Atlantic, it it was September. It was the height of the hurricane season. There was a... A letter that we had discovered. It was from another ship that was traveling with the Princess Augusta. And they said that they had been caught in a dozen storms over the course of 10 weeks. So they had weather to contend with. But they also lost probably two-thirds of the passengers to dysentery, as well as the captain and half the crew. Mm. The mortality rate on these Palatine ships really was only about 10%. And on the
2: Princess Augusta, it was closer to eighty percent. Oh wow! So yeah, so this was a right. this was an anomaly. Mm-hmm. You mentioned we've talked about some of the the passengers, the survivors mm-hmm. of that. Um, there's one character in particular uh, in, in your book that as we learn, plays Mm -hmm. a pretty significant role, perhaps, in the evolution of this legend Mm -hmm. itself, right? Tell us a little bit about Long Kate. Long Kate. We don't really know much about
0: her. Um, She was one of two women who chose to stay behind on the island while the others uh, moved on to uh, resume their journey to Philadelphia. Um, She was called Long Kate because apparently she was exceedingly tall with very, very light skin. The islanders at the time apparently were afraid of her because of her bizarre behavior. She would wander off and then hide behind a stone wall or under a clump of bushes and she would lay there for hours in a trance, unresponsive. And then when she would come to again, she'd wander back home and she would tell people that she had just flown across the sea back to Europe to talk to her family. So I think The Block Islanders were pretty weirded out by that. Mm, Yeah. So they they thought she was a witch. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, And she also did some fortune telling on the island. So they couldn't have been too afraid of her, Mm, you know, because they – She was the eccentric islander. Right, right. And um, she ended up marrying an African slave on the island, and they had children. And the descendants of one of them are still in southern – Southern New England.
2: Where do you think the the facts of of the wreck and the the the, the truth sort of departed and started to take on this this ghost ship sighting mm-hmm. um, legend? I mean, where did those two things diverge? I think almost immediately because the newspapers that reported on the wreck
0: um, didn't give the complete story. And so you had different versions um, floating about. Mm-hmm. Um, then when a ghost ship, a supposed ghost ship, um, appeared on the one-year anniversary of the wreck, well, of course, because of the timing, it was linked to this shipwreck. And, of course, they blamed Long Kate for having conjured it up.
2: And so who yeah. who supposedly saw this ghost ship? Islanders on... on- Well, we know about it because there was a ship traveling
0: through Block Island Sound and the captain, as the story goes, the captain saw this tall ship on fire. And they tried to approach and when they got near, it just sank beneath the waves. But there was nothing left on the surface of the water. There was no debris. There were no bodies. They could find nothing. And so they were so spooked by it that the captain wrote in his log
2: about it. The book by Jill Farinelli, The Palatine Wreck, The Legend of the New England Ghost Ship. Jill, thanks so much for joining us and for being on Next. Thank you, Shannon. I appreciate it. New England is often seen as a destination for history and natural beauty, but not necessarily as a hub for the arts. New Englanders are known for being hardworking, thrifty, and ingenious. And Lucas Spivey says those qualities are just as important for artists as the creative spark. Spivey travels the country interviewing artists about how they make a living from their art. Then he publishes those interviews on his podcast, Culture Hustlers. Spivey's current show at the Boston Center for the Arts features works by living and hustling artists from around the country. Next producer, Andrea Maraskin, met up with him for a tour of the exhibition, plus some insights into the hustle of creating culture here in New England.
4: Walking into the gallery, I feel like I'm embarking on an arts road trip. In one corner, there's a map laid out on a picnic table on top of a bright green rectangle of AstroTurf. Videos show artists making their work. Behind each display, the shape of the state where the artwork originated is painted in bronze from floor to ceiling.
6: I wanted you to walk up to the work and not feel like you were bigger than the pieces. And then I also wanted to momentarily transport people to a different part of the country.
4: Lucas Spivey, a self-described BFA-MBA hybrid based out of Boston, is the curator of this show. After watching his fellow art school grads flounder trying to make a living, Spivey made it his mission to pick up know-how from successful artists and share that knowledge. To that end, posters and videos here clue viewers into the business models behind the art. Representing Illinois is a series of cheeky, cartoon-like prints by Chicago-based painter Derek Erdman, a six-panel strip entitled Unlearn how to draw Khloe Kardashian is really speaking to me.
6: And it starts with a pretty nice painting of Khloe Kardashian and then slowly just takes away her eyes, her hair, her every feature, then turns her into like kind of a Bigfoot looking monster and then a scribble at the end.
4: And how do you build a business off meme esque art like this? Spivey explains how Erdman does it.
6: So he posted this on Instagram and Facebook, and the idea is just be provocative. And so people will enjoy that, and he'll get like 10,000 likes. But you can also buy a takeaway of that internet meme, whatever you want to call it. So you can purchase a painting of what he put out on social media.
4: In front of the outline of Washington State, Spivey has sacked a series of tightly done, brightly colored glass mosaics. They're manufactured in the working-class mountain town of Tieton
6: which is literally on a dead-end road in the Cascade Mountains. And 1,200 people live there, and they have this business incubator called Mighty Titan, And they have trained locals to work on things like letterpress and silkscreen and mosaics and laser cutting and bookbinding.
4: Other displays include textiles from an indigenous weaver collective in New Mexico and metalwork by a husband and wife team in Detroit. You won't find work by New England artists here. That's because for traveling exhibits like this one, Spivey makes a point of highlighting artists that aren't local. But he did interview several Boston culture makers last year, and he's turned those interviews into episodes of his Culture Hustlers podcast, which debuted in the fall. Spivey's first ever podcast guest, Aaron Robertson, is basically a poster child for the idea that Boston can be cool.
2: I didn't even know that you could go to art school in high school. I didn't know that that was an option.
4: In 2016, she became the first Bostonian to win Project Runway. Here's a clip from the podcast.
2: I mean, one of the reasons why I'm staying in Boston versus going to like, a more fashionable city is because there is so much technology happening in the city. New ways of, of like just thinking about how something is made and like what it's made out of. And artists are hungry to collaborate with scientists and scientists are like also hungry to collaborate with artists.
4: For example, Robertson has used faux fur made with a 3D printer at MIT in some of her clothes. Spivey says another advantage for artists living in Boston and New England is the high concentration of foundations and donors who fund the arts here. But he's learned there is a trade-off to the nonprofit funding model.
6: Those private foundations and those charitable individuals in the New England area are very conservative and don't, in my opinion, fund enough experimental projects where there's not a pedigree behind it and there's not a long-standing tradition behind it.
4: He says it's hard to remember projects that never got off the ground, but he tells me about one that had to wage a long fight to succeed. AS-220, a gallery and performance space, opened in downtown Providence in the 90s in a derelict building without running water. It was an underground, uncensored place for art in different media.
6: And there was no hierarchy to it. So people were like, well, how do you know it's going to be good? Like there's nobody curating or jurying it or like saying no to this. And that was the whole point.
4: But it was ultimately AS220's lack of boundaries that brought the organization success, according to Spivey. Today, they own multiple buildings, including 47 live-in studios, four galleries, and a black box theater.
6: It didn't stick with one thing. It was for everybody. It was for musicians. They have a cafe now, so it's for, for chefs and food lovers. And then they were preserving buildings so architects could get behind it, too. And then on top of that, it was a service to the community in that these blighted buildings were suddenly being revitalized.
4: Now, thriving in Providence or Boston is one thing, but can an artist hack it in a place like Connecticut's Quiet Corner or somewhere remote like Vermont's Northeast Kingdom? Spivey says that in the age of Instagram, YouTube, and three-day shipping, a resourceful creator can make and monetize art from just about anywhere. And he says that's a good thing.
6: My dream is that if we can get those folks to stay in their community, then those communities really thrive because they're missing creative people, and we're missing creative people for a long time, but that doesn't have to be uh, the way moving forward.
4: As for rural centers for culture in New England, Spivey shouts out Mass MoCA in North Adams, Massachusetts, North Conway, New Hampshire, and, wait for it, Eastport, Maine. It's the easternmost town in the country, and it's home to an arts organization called the Tides Institute.
6: And they're incredible. They do these events out on the streets. They have a museum. Even way out there, unique things are happening.
4: The exhibition Culture Hustlers, Artists Minding Their Business is on view at the Mills Gallery at the Boston Center for the Arts through April 8th. If you have a question about the business of the arts, you can leave a note for Lucas Bivy there. Or leave a voicemail on the Culture Hustlers hotline. That number is 978-712-8858. You just might get your answer in the form of a podcast. That's
2: Next Producer, Andrea Moraskin reporting. You can find photos and a video from the Culture Hustlers exhibition on our website, nextnewengland.org. We've also got a link there to the Culture Hustlers podcast. Next is produced at WNPR by Andrea Moraskin. The executive producer is Katie Tularski. We had production help this week from Bart Rankin Glenn Alexander and Rachel Gerringer. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. You can hear more of his music at ToddMerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York and the Melville Charitable Trust. It's powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and Connecticut Public Radio.